We are going to be returning this morning to a passage that you've become very familiar with over the last few weeks, uh, because even though I've spent a lot of time talking on Sunday mornings, I still haven't covered all of the ground that we really need to in regard to Romans uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 28 through 30. That's where we're going to be going this morning. Now, I put a little insert in your bulletin this week that might be helpful to you because we've been, we've been working on this now for a couple of weeks, but I've never really uh, brought to you in any detail uh, the theological ideas that lie behind this particular passage. We've talked about there's really two camps in the church. One is called uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology. The other is called Arminianism. Uh, and one of the areas, one of the principal areas of our disagreement with one another is how, in fact, people are saved. The issue is do people save themselves in any way, shape, or form, or is God the one who does the saving? But there's also another thing that fits into this picture, and that is is my salvation dependent upon my ability now to keep me saved, or is it dependent upon God to keep me saved? Now, I don't know about you, but one of those makes me feel very comfortable, and the other one makes me feel very uncomfortable. For instance, I can stand before you this morning, and I have a lot of comfort in the idea that my salvation does not depend upon my ability and my doing of particular things. That my salvation depends upon the ability of God to hold on to me, not on my ability to hold on to Him. Which one would you rather be true? Knowing yourself like you do. Do you want your salvation to rest completely upon your ability to hold on to Christ? Or do you have a lot more comfort comfort in knowing that your salvation rests in God's ability to hold on to you? That once he's got a hold of you, he will never, ever let you go. This is probably... this. The things we're talking about right now, probably the principal dividing point within the church today. In other words, this particular thing determines what flavor of church you happen to be in and which one you think may be ill of to some degree. You know that we're reformed here. Uh, that we are Calvinists here. Our denomination is. And let me just say, historically, what you would find is this, is that all Protestants have their roots, not just in the Reformation, but in the Reformed flavor of the Reformation. Remember the conversation I had with the Armenian pastor a few years ago, and it had to do with with this, and that is the, 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 at one time, immediately on the, hand, on the heels of the Reformation, weren't pretty much all Protestants reformed? And the answer to that was yes, 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 yes. But today you find the Reformed perspective being the less common perspective on salvation in the church today. 
But it comes down to this ultimate question is this, is does God save people or do people save themselves? Does God do the saving entirely or do people actually do it? And what I would say to you is this, is I believe God does it completely. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what this Romans chapter 8 is all about. Because one of the things that we're going to learn, we're not there yet, but you get toward the end of the chapter, one of the things that Paul lists up there is this. is This is the only place you can find assurance. This is the only place you know that you're, once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't fall away. If you live in a place where there's always a possibility you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fall away, let me just tell you, you cannot have assurance of your salvation, period. If it's left up to you ultimately, then there is no ground for you to ever have real assurance of your salvation, ever. So verse 28, and we know that God causes all things, all things, not just some things, to work together for their good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, in whom he predestined, these he also called, and in whom he called, these he also justified, in whom he justified, these he also glorified. That last verse, or actually all of these verses, have to do with what we call the golden chain of salvation. That's what that diagram in your, uh, your bulletin has to do with, this golden chain of salvation, or what in, in the Latin is called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And what it represents of every aspect or every step that is absolutely necessary to bring someone from being unsaved to the point that they are saved. Completely. Now, we use chains for all kinds of things. I know that some of the ladies are sitting out there and they have necklaces on, and so they, they're using that chain to hold up usually some kind of pennant or something else that's on it. We use chains to bind things with. We understand that that's principally what chains have to do with. It's binding things together or holding things up. We also know this. That every chain strength is dependent upon one single thing. And that one single thing is the strength of the weakest chain. That if you're going to break that chain, every time it breaks, it's going to break at the point where it's weakest. And the reason it's called the, the chain of salvation is because each one of these links represents a particular aspect of salvation that must, in fact, be done for you to go from the place of being a dirty, rotten, unsaved person to someone who is basking in the glory of God in the new heaven and earth. God does these things. 
you're going to find that the list we have in that, in that diagram has some elements in it. In other words, it has some links in it that are not listed here in the Romans passage. The reason that they are there is because we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And to understand anything, you have to make an appeal to the rest of Scripture. So what you're going to find is even though these other links in this chain are not mentioned specifically here in Romans 8, they are mentioned in other places in Scripture. So my whole point here is this, is if you want a whole picture of everything that is absolutely necessary to bring someone who is a total unbeliever to someone who is a saved believer basking in the glory of God and his eternal kingdom, every one of these links is an essential element of it. If you take any of them out of it, then the chain falls apart. We've talked a lot about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge means knowing beforehand, literally. But when it comes to these matters, the question is this, and that is, obviously God foreknows. Let me ask you something. How much do you foreknow? Do you foreknow everything that's going to happen tomorrow? Is there anything that you know for certain will happen beyond where you're at right now? There are always things that, always monkey wrenches that can be thrown into the mix for you and I to throw things. In other words, things don't always come out the way we think they're going to. Very often they don't come out the way we think they, why? Because somebody throws a monkey wrench into the thing and throws it, messes it all up. God is the only one who can know definitively, absolutely, what lies ahead. And there is no monkey wrench that can throw his plans off course. None. But the question here is this, is Arminians would say this, they would say that God for, what God foreknew was this, as he looked ahead in the future to see who would believe and, and who wouldn't, and then he went back and then he wrote the names of those he saw would believe in the Lamb's Book of Life. Understand, if you believe that, you have to believe this. That you're really not fallen completely dead in your trespasses. That there has to be a spark of righteousness in you that enables you to choose something that other people choose not to choose. In other words, there's a sense in which you have to believe that you're already better than other people to some degree because you choose Christ and they don't. That sounds kind of arrogant to me. And see, the crazy thing about it is the people on the other side of the street very often are the ones who call reform people arrogant and prideful and puffed up. We understand this. If, if someone is left to themselves, there's got to be something special about that person to make a decision that they would not make otherwise when other people don't make the same decision they do. It requires them to have a free will. But let me just tell you something. That free will is this concept that's thrown around by the church constantly and continually. It is not a biblical concept. The Bible never declares that any man or woman has a free will. The Bible describes our will as being in bondage, in prison to sin. 
apart from the grace of God. The grace of God's the only thing that ever makes a difference in that picture. In other words, what I'm telling you is what foreknowledge means is this, is you're saved because God determined before he even made you, when he first knew you, before you, that, that you would believe. And if he hadn't done that, you never would have. Those he also called. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's, we talk about the external call, which is called effectual calling here. We also talk about the inward call. Now, what's the difference here? Well, the outward call is this, is what I'm doing right now. Is I'm preaching. I'm preaching the gospel. That's the outward call, the, the call of the gospel that goes out universally to anybody and everybody. In other words, when we start the worship service here on Sunday morning, I don't look around the room and say, okay, Charlie, you can stay here, and you can stay here, Randy, and you can stay here, Carol. The rest of you guys have to leave. The outward call goes out to everyone, regardless of whether they believe or they don't believe. That is the message of the gospel. This is the mission of the church, is to go out, and preach and teach this gospel and what we say and what we do. And it's just not a responsibility that is borne by people like me. It is borne by every believer to witness to the world of the truth that you know in Christ. That's what you're doing when you're sharing the gospel, when you're evangelizing people. You're sharing with them the good news. And that's all you're doing. You can't save them. You can't save yourself. You can't save anybody else. And see, this is one of the downsides, the, uh, you know, the difficulties that our meetings have. And that is, is if you share the gospel with someone and they're fully capable of believing it, you did a lousy job. You just were not good enough to convince them of what the truth is. There's a sense in which the burden of their failure to lay hold of the gospel and call it for themselves is partly your responsibility because you didn't do it right. You were not convincing enough. It's not a responsibility I want to have, do you? We call this calling so that's the outward call, but there's also an inward call. The outward call is necessary, but the outward call alone will not save anybody. There has to be an inward call. Most of you, some of you have believed as long as you can remember most of you, however, came to faith sometime later on, if you've come to faith. I don't know for certain, you know, if you have. I don't know everybody in this room, so I can't say I know everybody here is saved. But one of the reasons I believe in this stuff so strongly is this, is it's what happened to me. 
There was a time when I had absolutely no interest in God whatsoever. I had no interest in the Bible, had no interest in Christianity, had no interest in Jesus. I looked down my nose, not very publicly most of the time, but down my nose upon these Christians whom, as far as I was concerned, were just plain, flat, ignorant people. But God began to call me. He began to woo me, to draw me to himself. That's the inward call. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you, calling you out of the masses of the unsaved and the unbelieving into the fold. There are a lot of people that reject the outward call. But no one rejects the inward call. That when you are in, inwardly called by God into the fold, you come. Period. And you don't do it for any other reason then that is your heart's desire. You follow because you want to. And I woke up one morning after struggling with this stuff for years, and I understood something. I believed. And I knew I didn't believe because of me. I knew that I believed because God came looking for me and he did what was necessary to get me. All of it. That's effectual calling. Now let me say, there's, some, there's a few links here in our chain that's on this piece of paper that are not here in Romans chapter 8. Again, that's because we have to let Scripture interprets Scripture, and so if you look in other places, there are other links in this chain that are mentioned. So Paul's not giving us an exhaustive list of everything here, only a partial list. So we use Scripture to supplement it. Regeneration. That means being born again. Familiar with the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? The Pharisee who came to see him one night in the dark because he didn't want his cronies to know he was going to talk to this Jesus guy. And that's where Jesus told him this. That to see the kingdom of God... You must be born again. I can remember just a few years ago, there were a lot of people. You saw people almost creating two different classes of Christians. Some of them were not born-again Christians. Others were born-again Christians. And people misused the whole thing. It would have been someone like, like maybe in my category where I was a church kid when I was younger, but then I fell away from it for years and years and years, but eventually I came back. And that was the idea of being born again. This is how Jimmy Carter used it when he described himself. That is not the biblical picture of being born again 
It's being born again by the Spirit. In other words, it's a spiritual rebirth. God does it. In other words, you can distinguish between whether someone's been through this or not in that does this person love the Lord Jesus Christ, really love the Lord Jesus Christ, and serve him, or do they not? If you're born again by the Spirit, as Jesus describes to Nicodemus, and one of the amazing things about it is this, is this guy was a Pharisee. This guy was one of the most knowledgeable scholars in his day that's supposed to know all these spiritual questions. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Do you not know this? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this very simple thing? Maybe you ought to get a different profession. Being born again is something that God does. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. He does it. And Jesus makes it very clear that he is the one that sends the Spirit, his Spirit, to do it. And he doesn't send his Spirit to absolutely everybody. Well, if you ask most people, what does it require for you to come to salvation? Two things are going to mention is faith and repentance, right? They're not here in Romans 8. So other essential links in this chain. You must repent of your sins and you must believe. All Christians would tell you that. The difference between a reformed person and one who's not is this, is... Reformed person will tell you this, that yes, I had came to the point of having faith and I repented of my sin because God brought me to that point, not because I did it. Faith is belief. Things hoped for, things not seen. Doesn't mean you have blind faith. Your faith is based upon some real things. But every one of us, every Christian would say this, that faith is the thing that's required for you to truly be a believer, faith in Christ. Right? Let me just say, faith and repentance come hand in hand. They are like two sides of the same coin. If you have faith, you have repentance. In other words, you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but you're not really repentant of your sin. And that means this, to be involved in putting the the vestige of sin that remains in you to death, like Paul says in Romans 8.13. Then you're not there. Your understanding of what we're talking about here is not where it's supposed to be. That repentance is not something you do one time in your lifetime. Repentance is an ongoing thing, something that Christians do all the time. And faith 
means a lot more than just agreeing to particular things. And this is how a lot of people would define faith out there in the world today. It's just, just at some point in my life, I just, I just acknowledge Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's my expression of faith. Whammo, bammo, when I die, I'm going to heaven. What I'm telling you here is real faith is demonstrated not just in a profession of faith, it is demonstrated in the practice of faith. Faith not practiced is not real faith. In other words, you can't claim to have faith in Jesus Christ and at the same time appear not to really give diddly about anything he tells you to do or not to do. And a principal part of that is resting your faith in him to save you, not you to save yourself. Because he can do it. You can't. It's impossible for you. Justification is one of the things that... Uh, that Paul mentions specifically here. And what justification means, or be justified, means to be declared just or righteous. In this context, we're talking about perfect justice or perfect righteousness. And Paul was writing this letter to a bunch of people that he's already described as being sinners. All of them. No exceptions. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Every one of us. No exceptions to it. Justification or perfect righteousness is the key to heaven. The only way to get into heaven is to have perfect righteousness. It's the only way that you can stand in the presence of holy God without being wholly consumed by his holy presence. To be justified, to be declared righteous. That cannot happen. By you or from you. In other words, if you are a sinner, and we all are, perfect righteousness does not exist in you. You cannot make it, you cannot fabricate it. That means this that if perfect righteousness is going to become yours, it has to come from outside of you. In other words, it has to be a gift to you. It has to be something that God and God alone can give to you. Notice here that in these verbs, Paul is using the future tense or the past tense. Not the future tense, the past tense. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified 
I want you to know something. This, in fact, this is, is your picture that we're looking at here. This chain is you. It's God doing it. You participate, don't get me wrong. But you do not have the wherewithal to do it yourself. You don't have the desire to do it yourself. As a matter of fact, you want to do everything but it if you're left to yourself. But for you to enter into the holy presence of God, you must first be justified. Other word, God is described in the Bible as a consuming fire. Adoption is another one that's not here. This is where you, you get into the book of Galatians. Paul talks a lot about being adopted. Ephesians chapter 1, that we're adopted into the family of God. You've heard me use this illustration before because it just really drives home the point I want to make at this, this time. But, but I can remember having a conversation with a young boy years ago uh, that had been adopted. And my father told me about it before I met him, and I don't really understand why, because it's like he's an adopted kid, so he's different, you know, when you just need to know they're different or, or whatever. But, but anyway, I'm having this conversation with the kid, and this kid tells me, he starts telling me, you know, I'm adopted. And he was happy about it. Probably a lot of adopted kids are just like, well, I'm glad I'm happy, but, you know, it would have been better if I stayed with my parents and this that and the other but you know how cruel kids can be and sometimes kids will find things like that out and then they make fun of people and this kid was enduring some of that persecution by other people you know his cronies because he was adopted and they weren't that means they were better they were special and he wasn't and he would go home crying sometimes and his father was talking to him one day, and he said, you know what? You know, all those kids that are not adopted, their mom and dad got stuck with them. They had no choice in the matter whatsoever. They had whatever was born, whatever came out of her womb was their kid, period. He said to his son, he said, you need to understand something, that being adopted makes you not less special, it makes you far more special. Because they chose you out of a bunch of others they could have. And what I'm telling you is that when you're adopted into the family of God, it makes you extra special because he wanted you as his son or daughter to make you his. And he's done everything necessary to make that a reality. Everything. This chain of salvation is for you. Every link in it has to do with saving you. Because for whatever reason, God set his love and his intention upon you at the very beginning of time. But what a treasure, what a blessing it is to truly be 
adopted into the family of God. There's people in this room, I don't know that I, as a human, am, am, am capable of loving more than I love some of the people in this room. People that we have known for a long time. We've been through the good times. We've been through the bad times. We stuck together. And as we've done that, our love and respect for one another has increasingly grown more and more and more. We have lots of brothers and sisters in every age. these days you might be able to walk down the street of heaven with the Apostle Paul having a conversation with Peter see this is one of the things there are a lot of churches today that continue to drive a dividing point between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. It does a disservice to the gospel. I don't know how you can have that viewpoint without ripping, literally ripping Ephesians chapter 2 out of your Bible. Because the whole thrust of it is there is there's no distinction to be made any longer between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. We are all believers. We're all part of the family of God, joined together one as one, not as two separated pieces. As you become as you're adopted, God the Father, obviously. We become brothers and sisters to each other with a bond that is far greater than the, 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 the bond that you have with your blood-related brothers and sisters. It's even greater if they share your common belief. Sanctification is another one that's not mentioned here. What this basically means, sanctification means to be declared holy. I've given you some scripture passages there that you can go to, to to look at that more. But let me ask you something. Do you feel holy where you're sitting right now? And holy means to be perfectly righteous, to always do the right thing, to have a complete, pure heart for God and nothing else, and you know this, that, and the other. Is that where you're at? There's a sense in which you can say, yes. Because of what Paul says here. He says there's a sense in which you are already glorified. Oh, wait, I, I'm getting off track here. There's a sense in which you're already sanctified. There's what's called positional sanctification, and there's progressive. Positional basically is you're sanctified, you're set apart for a holy purpose just simply because you're a believer. In other words, there is a sense in which that has already taken place in you. 
There's also what we call progressive sanctification, and that just means growing as a Christian. In other words, making this forward motion as you believe in, uh, and live in Christ, where you're growing deeper in your faith and, and et cetera. And it's not a direct, you know, uphill, downhill, whatever. Because there are things that get in the process that kind of make things move ahead or Sometimes you feel like you're taking a step backward as a Christian. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do. Not, not this unbroken, steady, moving ahead motion that sometimes there are sidetracks you get off on and this, that, and the other, uh, and whatever. Uh, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to you, there's a sense in which you are sanctified right now. But, but at the same time, I would imagine all of us here understand that we need to grow as Christians. That's what progressive sanctification is. It's dying more and more to the old self and living, living more and more to the new. Maturing as a believer. And I think this is an area probably in the church today that is really sadly neglected. I think the focus very often is to get people saved, and once you get them saved, move on to other people to get them saved, and so on and so on and so on. And you don't really spend a whole lot of time helping the people that are already here to become sanctified. Perseverance. Paul is going to hit on this as he gets further into Romans 8. And when we get there, you'll find this, that Paul bases, perseverance means, in a essence, sometimes it's stated as preservation of the saints. In other words, the idea that once you're saved, once you're truly saved, you will always be saved, that you cannot fall away. It's not one of the things that Paul has mentioned in, uh, in Romans 8, 28 through 30, but he does get into this toward the end of the chapter. In other words, what Paul's saying is this, is once God's put you on this course, you cannot fall away. It's impossible for someone that God has set his mind on, his heart on, and he started this, but he can't fall away. Now, you may say, well, I know so-and-so and so. You know, they, they came to faith in Jesus Christ, and you know, there's reason to believe it was really legitimate because they were on fire for the Lord, and they did all these kind of really great, wonderful things, etc., 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 and then all of a sudden they fell away and left the church. So I know it's possible for real believers to fall away, but what I'm telling you guys, what the Bible says is this, is if you truly do believe, you will not, you cannot fall away. Because God saves you, and God is the one that has to keep you saved. And once you become a believer, you still have the influence of sin that wants to strip you away from him, and it will do everything it can to do that. Again, if you want to have assurance of salvation, the only way you can have assurance is if... If my fate ultimately and absolutely rests in the hands of God, not me. You think about the parable of the sower. That's what we're talking about here. The words of Jesus. He talks about four different things that people might think are 
faith, but he describes one of them as being the good soil, which is real faith. The other three have some semblance to faith, or two of them do. One of them has none, no semblance to it at all, the seed that falls upon uh, amongst the thorns and thistles, or the bad soil. But there are times, we need to understand this, where there are people who look, smell like Christians for a time, but all of a sudden, they're gone. What that tells us is this, is they were not truly saved to begin with. They might have thought they were for a time or whatever, but they were not really saved. Because what Jesus says is that when that seed falls on the good soil, things grow. Glorification, Paul mentions here, the last thing in this chain that he's got. Glorification means to be glorified. What I would say to you is this, is, is my understanding, the definition of glorification ought to be this, is that point at which you are made perfectly in the image of Christ. When the image of the Son of, Christ, of God is reestablished completely, totally in you. Now we understand this, that when we die, we die in this life before Christ comes back, then... Our spirit is going to leave here and go to be with Jesus while our body stays here in the ground, right? Here on earth. And we know that Jesus is coming back. No one knows for certain when that's going to be, but one of these days Jesus is going to come back, and when he comes back, he's going to bring the spirits of those who are his, who have died over that interim between his first coming and his second coming. He's going to bring them with him. And he's going to resurrect their bodies. He's going to be reunited with their perfected resurrection body. And they're going to be with him for all of eternity. So what I'm telling you is glorification takes place in part at the time of our death, if we die. Why can we say that? Because we know this, but for our spirit to enter into the complete holiness, full presence of God Almighty, to be in the presence of Jesus in heaven requires that being to be glorified. And then when their body is resurrected, it will also be glorified too. In other words, the Bible describes God's presence as a consuming fire. Because of his holiness, he cannot bear, he cannot stand in the presence of unholiness. Or unholiness cannot stand in his presence. In other words, for God to completely save you, you have to get to the point that eventually you are glorified if you're going to be there with him in heaven. That doesn't happen, it can't happen. When you bear perfectly the image, that's probably the best definition of glorification, is when you bear perfectly the image of Christ. When that image of, uh, of God that was man was made in is reestablished in you. 
and it will be your eternal state. No sin anymore. At all. Not ever. Now, if that sounds like heaven to you, I think you're on the right track. If it doesn't, you probably need to think about some things. Jesus said to that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not next week, not next year. And we know that when he died, his body stayed here. The spirit went with Jesus, went to be with Jesus. But again, as we're wrapping all of this up, I just want to reiterate the real issue here, the real question here is do people save themselves at all? Or is it God who does all of it? doesn't mean that we don't have to participate in some of it. We do actively have to participate in some of it. But underlying all of it is the power of God working in us to make it possible. There's some ideas that are thrown around today that uh, they just don't hold the mustard. And one of those is this, is if you talk about Calvinism or Reformed theology, then you're going to discourage people from evangelizing. That is poppycock. When you understand these things, when you, you come to the point of knowing that God saved you, that I did not save myself, that how, that's how much he wanted me, that's how much he loves me, that's how much I can have confidence in the fact he will never let me go. When you come to the point of realizing that, it should not discourage you from evangelizing people. It should actually encourage you to do it. Because you know the blessings of God and you want other people to have those same blessings. Not only that, you also want to be obedient to your Lord who has told you to do it. Not encouraged you to do it, has told you to do it. Not has suggested to you it's a possibility that you might want to think about doing that on occasion. He has told you this is the responsibility I have given to you where you are. To be that light that draws other people. To be that salt. We all have a sphere of influence. Every one of us. And God's expectation for every one of us is to have a passion, a desire to be used by him in the process of him saving people. Let me tell you something. When you do this, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be surprised. Sometimes the people that you think God's saving don't always turn out to be those ones. You've heard me say this. One of my very best friends, when I became a believer, looked at me and told me, you're the last person on the face of the planet I ever thought would become a Christian. And he had good reason to believe that. 
It's not up to us. It's up to him. You're not in control, even of yourself. He is. If he's not, he's not a sovereign God. He's not strong, he's weak. Please don't try to minimize the greatness, the goodness, the power of our God, even in matters of salvation. There are people who would have you believe that this table that we're about to participate in represents the attempt of God to make salvation possible for people. If you believe that, you have to also believe that there's a possibility, maybe a very small possibility, that Jesus would have come and did everything he did and not saved one single person. No one would have believed. Again, the Bible describes this not as being sick in our sin, but absolutely dead in our sin. Dead to God. But if we're going to live, he's got to breathe life into that which was otherwise dead. This table represents the sacrifice of Christ. The question is, did he do this to make salvation possible for you? Or did he do it to save you? I hope you understand it's the second. That you're that orphan. That God determined that he wanted when maybe nobody else did. And he did everything and is doing everything necessary to make it. This is Christ's pledge to you to save you and to keep you saved. He did this for you. In other words, when he came into the world, he was on a mission. And the mission was not just to maybe save a few people here and there or even a lot of this. His mission was to save specific, particular people that God, his Father, had already given to him. In other words, when you understand these biblical truths, you understand that Jesus came to save me. To do it for me. Because he wanted me. Because he loved me. Because for whatever reason, he thinks I'm special.
just special.